Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SIAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SIAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, Check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SIAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on their website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and a co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to Lynette Chua about her book, The Politics of Love in Myanmar. LGBT Mobilisation and Human Rights as a Way of Life, published by Stanford University Press in 2019. Lynette is an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the National University of Singapore. She is also the Head of Law Liberal Arts at Yale NUS. This very readable book explores the evolution of Myanmar's LGBT movement and its adoption and adaptation of human rights concepts through the lens of relationships and emotions. It draws on qualitative fieldwork conducted over several years in Thailand and in Myanmar itself. Threaded through the book are the personal stories of key activists as well as a vivid movement's national organisation. While unashamedly empirical in orientation, it asks us to challenge our thinking about human rights as a concept and a tool, but most importantly, to consider it as a lived practice. Lynette, I'd like to start by asking what brought you to write this book. It was, first of all, based in response to a news report uh, on the internet, uh, I think it was the Irrawaddy that mentioned there was a celebration of the International Day Against uh, Homophobia that was simultaneously uh, held across five towns and cities in Myanmar. This was in 2010 or 2011. I think it was 2011. And uh, that sparked my interest because... As we know, at the time, the country had reportedly just been starting a transition into uh, semi-civilian rule. And, but before that, there has been repression of human rights activism for such a long time. And that event clearly spoke about human rights violations. And I was interested in knowing how this group of people managed to mobilize under those conditions and what human rights meant to them being uh, living under such repressive conditions for so many decades. In the early pages of the book, you say that the challenges experienced by human rights activists in Myanmar more generally are amplified for LGBT activists. 
Can you talk us through the reasons why this is the case? Well, that is in addition to the usual concerns and fears and real reprisals in the forms of the violence that human rights activists have been known to suffer and endure under the uh, uh, military regime. Um, by that, I mean that especially for trans women or what we from the outside would identify as trans women, uh, their plight is often attributed to the consequences of bad karma accumulated from transgressions in past lives. And in other words, there is nothing much you can do about it. And the pain and humiliation is something that has to be endured. And this is quite widely accepted or widely held belief. And so that creates a culture of shame and fear for many of them. And this is the additional challenge that I was referring to when it comes to mobilizing for human rights uh, by this group of people, because uh, there is that sense that they don't deserve to be equal. Taking a step back from lived experience, the central concept of this book is the concept of human rights practice as a way of life. Can you explain what you mean by this and how it relates to agency? The central concept that I developed, which is what you mentioned, human rights practice as a way of life, is anchored in the way in which the activists of the LGBT rights movement have embraced human rights and have chosen it as their political strategy to advance the status and the interests of uh, LGBTQ population in Myanmar. So By that, I'm referring to several components. The first one is the way in which they relate to human rights, which I describe as an emotional fealty or loyalty to the notion that human rights can transform their sense of self, uh, imbue them with confidence, and uh, help them step forward as activists to fight for rights for themselves and for others who, whom they perceive as sharing the same plight. So that's one component. The uh, second component is that emotional bond with each other that is held together by the shared understanding and practice and interpretation of human rights. That's from the uh, first uh, component. So human rights is not just about going around talking about their uh, strategies or talking to politicians or trying to change the minds of public, but it's also embedded in the way they relate to each other. For instance, as people who share a common marker around LGBTQ, because outside of the movement, uh, there are sexual and gender minorities who may not necessarily see each other as being connected. For instance, what we consider to be trans women and who we consider to be trans men, they may not necessarily see themselves as one community, but within the movement that held together by this notion of LGBT rights. So that's the second component. They are incredibly important in for me to bring about the idea of human rights practice as a way of life. So it's not just the cognitive ideas of rights. They have interpreted by the emotional bond to rights and to each other through that practice. Hmm. So in the book, you describe this as a process of self-transformation for the rights bearer but also the creation of this distinct emotional culture amongst the community more generally. But the third element you mention is the emergence of new political claims and claimants as a result of these two earlier processes. Could you speak a bit more about how this is manifested in Myanmar? In concrete terms, it is uh, on public platforms talking about LGBT people, talking about 
human rights for them in their uh, meetings or interactions with parliamentarians or members of certain political parties, putting forth the claim that this is a group or a constituency that they ought to uh, look out for and also assist. So it comes out concretely in that sense. I think that prior to the to this movement, even when human rights had been raised in the public arena or, or in politics, LGBT rights or sexual and gender minorities' plight and and their needs and interests have not been aired in that manner or even uh, have achieved any sort of visibility. So that was what I was referring to. So has this political engagement led to any substantive changes in policies? If you're talking about concrete changes in policy, I think most of us will be greatly disappointed. One of the things that the movement really wanted to change is the penal code, especially Section 377, that criminalizes sexual relations between people of the same gender. That has not made any headway, although there's been lots of conversations around that, including with members of the NLD parliamentarians from that party. At the policy level, from my understanding, I've been in touch with some of the movement leaders and they have mentioned possibly some changes to the curriculum in public schools in the way they talk about gender or some incorporation of sexual and gender minorities in the school books. But I haven't actually seen that come into fruition The rest of the book is organised around three sets of what you describe as recursive overlapping processes that connect collective action with local adaptations of human rights. What are these and how do they work? So the central organising concept around the book, Human Rights Practice as as a Way of Life, is the idea that emotions and relationships are very much inherent in the cultural processes of mobilising for human rights. And those processes in the Burmese LGBT rights movement can be divided into three crucial types. So the first one, which I elaborated upon in chapter two, is around the emergence of the movement. And these were relationships and the related emotions that emerged out of those relationships that led to the formation of the movement. So I talked about political disaffection. I talk about the ties of fear and around being political dissidents and the uh, ties of suffering around HIV AIDS epidemic in Myanmar. These were people who were in some form or another eventually brought to each other because of these connections into forming the nascent LGBT rights movement at the time. So these were form of processes of formation, but within them, Uh, how they came about were actually through these relationships, some of them fortuitous, some of them more pre-planned, that are very much laden with emotions of fear, suffering, and uh, disaffection. So that's the first. And then the second, which I focused on in Chapter 3, was uh, grievance transformation. So here I talked about emotions that were really central to transforming the way people came to contact with the movement, learn about human rights, and managed to find a way to make it resonant and matter to their uh, living conditions. I mentioned that um, human rights activism and the discourse itself have been very much repressed under the military regime. And so the 
the way to get people into the movement was first of all to just get them to understand human rights and make it relevant to them. So these are the processes of adaptation and uh, what some scholars have called translation. But I take it one step further in emphasizing that it's not just translation in terms of just ideas or the cognitive aspects of it that's often emphasized, but also helping people understand emotion, uh, human rights through emotions, through the way they feel about it. So one of the most crucial moments for me in the fieldwork was when I asked one of the founders of the movement, I said, you know, people always talk about how human rights are Western, they're not resonant with a context like Myanmar. And he said, human rights here in Myanmar, people understand it through their suffering. And that really sort of turned on the light bulb for me to start to think about how human rights translation is actually also a process of changing the way you feel uh, and linking feelings of suffering and other negative feelings to human rights violations. And conversely, being able to relate to human rights as thinking about it as a solution or a possible pathway to changing those negative uh, emotions and conditions to something that's more empowering and more positive. And of course, in this, in this chapter, I talk a lot about how human rights are reinterpreted through this process of thinking and feeling, which, you know, in the literature, both in the social sciences and humanities have argued are actually not so easily separable, how they help the activists and the newcomers come to understand human rights in their own uh, unique uh, version. So it's not just the notion of teaching them, oh, this is what the Universal Declaration says, this is what the Jokakata principles say. It's not that sort of direct explanation. Then the third one is the community building. So earlier I talked about how the practice of human rights itself is connected not just through the emotional fealty, which they get to through grievance transformation processes, but also the emotional bonding among the activists themselves. And this is where community building comes in. So one part of this chapter talks about how the sense of community of LGBT rights activism uh, is connected through that uh, ident- marker identifier LGBTQ, which scholars in other contexts have talked about how much it is linked to rights-based claims. Uh, so around that, the you can see people in the movement coalesce around this notion that we are together, regardless of whether they identify as LGBT or Q, or in the more local terms, Apuin, for instance. So that's one aspect. And through that, there is sense of building solidarity and fellowship and so on. The other aspect is a little bit more nuanced, I think, that is related to the way they feel about these terms, right? Which then they actually reinterpret into their own local context. So what we think as somebody who is lesbian may not actually mean the same thing or apply to the same group of people in the same way in the Burmese context. So there's also this process of reinterpretation, adaptation. But what is important about it is the idea when they take on this new or new to them kind of identity, they feel that they change the way they felt about themselves as well. So again, there are scholars who have concerns about how these important identities, especially when they're linked to rights, may displace or uh, replace the uh, more local terms 
uh, or terms used to explain sexual or gender subjectivities in a particular context. But here, what we have is people embracing all kinds of different identities. Some of them keep the local terms and markers for themselves when they are in their family circle or with friends, but within the movement and when they're dealing with people from outside the movement as activists, for instance, talking to politicians or policymakers, they use uh, the markers of LGBT or Q because to them, that is what they represent for the movement. And so when they take on these new identities, they say that it is a different feeling. So when I ask, for instance, what's the difference between the Burmese term that you have used for yourself in the past and and why are you taking on is essentially a Western term. They say the feeling is different, meaning that there is lack of a baggage for them, these newer terms that is linked to uh, discrimination or abuse, because oftentimes the pre-existing uh, Burmese terms that have been used by themselves or used on them are oftentimes pejorative or used in a very abusive context, at least that's how many of them feel. But of course, there are others who feel that these terms are also neutral. Nonetheless, the idea that taking on new identity gives you a different feeling, gives you a new sense of empowerment was also important because then it adds to that idea of being emotionally bonded to the movement and to a community of people identifying the same way, creating sort of a culture around certain ways of thinking and feeling and a pathway, understanding of how to create social change for themselves. I'd like to now step us through the chapters a little more. Chapter two focuses very much, as we said before, on the social process of formation, which involved grassroots organisers travelling to Thailand, where Vivid, the national organisation, was based at that time. This chapter is structured very much around the experiences of key protagonists. Their stories are woven through the chapters. I'm sure our listeners would like to know a bit more about these protagonists and what they did to contribute to this initial stage of the movement. Yes, chapter two is built around the founders of the movement. And that was a deliberate choice because I needed to tell the story of how the movement came about. And I also needed to use this chapter to communicate the idea of how emotions and relationships were already crucial from the very start of the movement. And so I actually trace it back to not to the founding moment of the LGBT rights movement itself, but more than 10 years before that, in fact, 20 years before that, to 1988, uh, at the height of the protests against the military regime at the time, because that was when the founder of the LGBT rights movement started to express his political disaffection and eventually became a political dissident and become exposed to human rights. And through his network of political dissidents, he was able to then eventually recruit others who became also key to the start of the movement, uh, like the young man I mentioned from Kachin State, who's now passed away, um, how he was drawn into the first founders uh, network because he that person went to Kachin State to talk about human rights. But also at the time, he was already quite open about the fact that he's non-heterosexual man. And that really drew the uh, young man from Kachin to this person. And from there on, you know, he went to Chiang Mai because the founder was already based in Chiang Mai and how that drew him over there. And from there, through their other connections, eventually that spanned across Myanmar, uh, working with other NGOs, particularly on HIV AIDS, they managed to recruit people, not just the migrants who are working in 
Thailand, but also people who were based in the grassroots in towns and villages in Myanmar. And they managed to do that because of the HIV AIDS NGO network. Because at the time, even under military regime, as, as you know, um, activist organizations and NGOs were very much controlled by the government. But HIV AIDS work was one of the areas in which they were allowed to focus on, at least uh, narrowly on questions of health. And so it was through that network that they first managed to find some of the primarily, I would say, non-heterosexual men, uh, cisgender men, and also non-gender conforming individuals to go over to Thailand surreptitiously to attend a, a a human rights workshops and and get them feeling empowered to join the movement. So that uh, was why I wanted to make sure that I could convey the idea of how the, at the start of the movement, all these prior relationships that really sort of built around or emerging from the uh, mismanagement, the repression, and the suffering of ordinary Burmese in the country, how that all came together and, and managed to ferment and what was eventually the LGBT rights movement. I'd like to follow up on this question of shame. Chapter three, which is the chapter that focuses on how activists transform their personal grievances into a collective understanding of injustice, spends quite a lot of time talking about karma and suffering, but also how activists navigate through this suffering and shame and towards hope. Can you tell us a bit about how this process unfolded? Yes, this was also something I started to pay a lot of attention to after that conversation I mentioned earlier with the founder of the movement and the way he linked the suffering of ordinary Burmese to human rights, or rather human rights are violations. And what I learned was that the way in which they made human rights relevant to newcomers, people who were absolutely unfamiliar with human rights, was to make them understand or see through a different framework that all the suffering that I had endured can be seen as human rights violations. So the negative feelings of humiliation or or pain, that can be linked to the fact that their human rights were not uh, respected or protected. And then there is a conversation around, you know, for instance, a certain article of the UDHR talks about the right of the accused to a fair trial. And can anybody talk about any experiences that they had with police. And so people start to talk about how they have been detained arbitrarily by the police, how they were tortured uh, while under detention and not being able to get access to a fair trial and so on and so forth. And so these were, uh, were ways in which through conversation, often through a lot of tears, to make them come to realize that, wait a minute, there's another way to understand my circumstances, and that is that my human rights have been violated. So then the next step through that process is to think about how their lives could be different if they could indeed enjoy human rights. As many of us know, uh, the situation in Myanmar is uh, a dream that's still very much unattainable. But what it also does in that process is that it helps them think of themselves as someone worthy of human rights who deserves to be treated better, to have a greater dignity and to belong in the society. So even though that dream of having their rights recognized, having the law reform is really far away, I think that that sense of self-transformation was the first step toward at least getting some people to join the movement and feeling that I can do something about my condition. 
and perhaps someday work towards uh, social change that has uh, policy or legal impact. And therein lies the hope. Chapter four is the chapter that deals with community building through collective identity. In the first part, you focus on discourse, but then the second part picks up the theme of solidarity. And something I wanted to raise with you here, which you mentioned earlier on, was this challenge of building a collective identity among disparate groups. Could you talk a bit more about the difficulties of bringing different parts of the LGBT community together in Myanmar? Yes, I only talk about two types. One is the class difference, and the other is divided along the different self-ascriptive、uh, markers. In terms of class, the national group or national organization is the one that holds the purse strings. It gets funding from European and from North American organizations and governments. So they often get to decide or try to decide the programming at the grassroots. So the way the movement works is there's this national organization, and they have different grassroots representatives in the smaller towns and and in the villages. And let's say this grassroots representative from X town wants to hold an event, that funding has to come from the national organization. So there is this tension between the national and the grassroots, and it's. Nothing too new in the sense that some critics have talked about how, when it comes to human rights organizations, often there's a class divide even at the local level, with the ones in the urban centers being more educated and more powerful because they control the financial resources. So the local groups want to hold, let's say, a beauty pageant where. Upwind or women or trans women would like to participate in because they think that draws crowds, and the idea is that during this event. They, you know, can talk about or have a speech, or it's somewhere in there,、uh, have a skit about human rights. That's the idea of promoting human rights through holding an event that will get a, a lot of attention in town. But the some members of the national organization will feel that, wait a minute, I can't really report that we use this money for a beauty pageant to my international funders, and they feel that the messaging of human rights has to be forefront in whatever activities they do. The grassroots feel that that's too boring. Nobody wants to come to an event that talks about human rights only. So you can see that tension, and that also gets worked out. There's an understanding and some compromises along the way, but definitely, I think that's one issue that will continue to surface. The other is using Western terms: trans women, trans men, lesbians, and gay men in Myanmar. They don't don't necessarily、uh, see themselves outside the movement as people who. Have much connection with each other, especially those who were born and assigned with the female identity, and those who were, when they were born, were assigned with the identity of male. They don't see each other as being related to each other. It's just that through the movement, the efforts of the leaders have been to say that you know we have all suffered some sort of disrespect or discrimination, and it's all because due to your sexuality or gender, and there is this common purpose of fighting human rights. So that's that. Effort to try to bring them together, but it is rather difficult. And because the movement started out with connections to HIV/AIDS NGOs and the grassroots organizations linked to that, it is dominated to this day by folks whom we would call trans women or gay men, rather than、uh, lesbian or trans men. And that is also associated with the gender inequality in the society. Even though they identify as trans women, they still have some of the privileges that comes with being assigned as male,、uh, being able to move more freely 
at night and less control from members, male members of the family compared to trans men or uh, uh, lesbians. And so that limits the ways in which they can participate as well. Actually, I want to talk about a third, which actually appears, I think, more in Chapter 5. That is the uh, very much Burman Buddhist outlook of the movement. It's very much a Burman Buddhist sort of centric kind of movement that people that through their networks they have been able to reach out to uh, are people who, if not both from the dominant uh, ethnic and religious group, at least those who uh, identify with the dominant religion, which is Buddhism. It's very hard for them to reach out to Christians, which who are often ethnic minorities as well, and much even less so uh, Muslim minorities. Thanks for that, Lynette. We're going to pause here for a moment to hear from our sponsors, but when we come back, I'd like to step back and discuss some of the broader themes that most struck me in the book. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm Michelle Ford and I'm talking to Lynette Chua about her book, The Politics of Love in Myanmar. Lynette, one of the clearest messages in the book concerns the contingency of human rights as a concept. Sexuality and gender identity are quite new additions when it comes to international formulations of human rights. Can you tell us a bit about how they came to be incorporated into these formulations? To claim rights, whether it's human rights or rights enshrined in a domestic constitution, Oftentimes, people have to link that, the claim for rights to a certain identity, whether you're a woman or someone who belongs to an ethnic minority or religious minority group. And so it's the same when it comes to claiming for LGBT rights. And that becomes linked to this international discourse around lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, and so on. In other words, the criticism and also the the claim is that in order for us to be recognized and be accorded with human rights, be treated equally, we must also be legible, right, to be a recognizable group of people to whom uh, the rights can be attributed to or whose rights can be protected. So in that sense, just as women claim for women's rights, uh, LGBT rights persons, coalesce around this identity to claim for rights that are linked to their sexuality or their gender identity. And that, for some critical scholars, has become a a problem, or at least a concern for them. And that is, these ideas of uh, LGBTQ, the argument goes, is that it's very much linked to notions of how sexuality and gender is understood and performed in usually Western contexts. And the problem, according to this argument, comes in when, let's say, people from a context like Myanmar, where they have not previously been exposed to this discourse around LGBTQ, but are more used to the ways in which locally they have understood gender performity and gender expression and gender identity and also sexuality. Uh, When they come to embrace these identities, it displaces uh, the more indigenous or to me, what the argument is, is the more authentic identity or, or that's pre-existed on the ground. So that's where the tension is. And along with that comes uh, the argument 
uh, goals is that it's linked to also international organizations that champion human rights, imposing their views of individuality and also uh, those Western ideas arguably imbued within rights that is then linked, uh, imposed or ask of these uh, domestic activists to incorporate into their activism or their uh, political uh, mobilization. You've raised a couple of really interesting points there. The first of which is how this international understanding of human rights becomes domesticated. And in the book, you make the point that it's reinterpreted through local culture and that this is a potentially a counter-hegemonic process. Can you give us a couple of concrete examples of how this counter-hegemonic process occurs? So in particular, for this uh, movement that I studied, from these processes of reinterpretation and adaptation, I learned that human rights meant to them essentially three things. That is dignity, uh, social belonging, and responsibility. So let me talk about how they're connected to each other. Uh, Dignity is very much linked to this idea of dignity found in international human rights discourse. But for these activists, Dignity is very important uh, in the sense of social belonging. If I am an outcast, if my community, whether it's family or friends, do not respect me, uh, I don't feel like I belong, and therefore I don't feel that I have dignity. I'm not somebody who lives a dignified life. And so for them, uh, these two meanings are interrelated. Uh, Social belonging is a form of dignity. So for instance, one activist said that because he's now working for this uh, movement organization, he has some what he calls status and he has some income, his mother is more respectful of him compared to his brother who is straight, but perhaps in a lesser financial situation. In that way, he feels that he has achieved some level of dignity. For the activists of this movement to achieve this dignity, the sense of social belonging and and all the other uh, larger things such as rights recognized by the state and so on and so forth, uh, to them it requires uh, somebody to fight for and that somebody is themselves, that sense of responsibility collectively to participate in the movement or in some way try to achieve a better life for their lot. And so by linking these three, dignity, social belonging, and responsibility of the rights bearer together, to them, human rights, my argument goes, denotes that sense of a collective good that has to be collectively achieved. And that is a counterpoint, or at least a reply to some of the criticisms and concerns that rights emanating from the West is individualistic, that it autonomizes individuals goes against uh, more communitarian values and so on and so forth. So this would be one example I, I would give. The second key point you raised before was about the role of international organizations. And this question of funding is always an interesting one, but never more so on issues where there's so little acceptance in a local community or a national context. Can you reflect a bit more on the role that Western donors have played in supporting Myanmar's LGBT movement and what this has meant for the movement? In the earlier days, when the main organization, that's now the national organization, when it was based in Chiang Mai, the funding primarily came from Scandinavian countries. And then when they eventually relocated to Yangon around 2013, so post that period of transition in 2011, 
other streams of funding started to come in. They started to get some ad hoc funding from embassies such as the Canadian embassy and the American embassy. But I have to say the North American side was a little bit uh, later in the involvement of the movement. The earlier was definitely the Scandinavian countries that supported them. So what kind of role it's played? I think I mentioned it earlier when I talked about that divide between the grassroots and the activists in the urban centers. The funding is primarily channeled into the national organization. So the communication and correspondence and the understanding of what the movement is doing or trying to achieve on the ground is filtered through that national organization. It's not just because that's where the money goes to, and I think it's linked. It's also because of the language, right? Some other national movement leaders are more bilingual. They can communicate better in English, whereas at the grassroots, they only communicate in uh, Burmese. And also, they tend not to like to write uh, reports. It's the national organization that provides these written reports as part and parcel of getting international funding. So the international funding plays a role in the ways in which it is linked and cooperates in some ways with the national organization and how that agenda is filtered down to the uh, local, more grassroots context. But of course, there is uh, tension and pushback and and some compromises between the grassroots and national organizations, as well as the national organization tries to also deal with their relationship and their obligations to these uh, international funders. And of course, things have changed again in Myanmar just this week when we're recording with the military arresting Aung San Suu Kyi and seizing power. At the risk of asking you to gaze into a crystal ball, how do you think the military's actions will affect the LGBT movement going forward? I think I can try to answer this question in, in two ways. Uh, one is look at specifically what's going to happen to the activities and the possible goals of the movement down the road. The honest answer is we really don't know. It's the early days of this coup. We're trying to see how much activity is being constrained, everything being rolled back, our NGOs and activists completely unable or would do so at great risk if they were to speak of human rights again. That really depends on what's going to happen. I've been in touch with a couple of people I know back in the days of my fieldwork, and they have seized uh, for the moment all activities connected to their movement. They have some online uh, Zoom meetings about what to do. I'm not privy to that conversation, but for now there are no activities, so everybody is waiting and see. So that's more of a more immediate answer I can give. The other way to look at it is to take a longer view of the legacy of the movement. Let's say in the worst case scenario, we are back to the days where human rights are actively suppressed and perhaps some of these activists were not there to talk about LGBT rights for a while. From a more sanguine kind of point of view, for those who do embrace human rights, or at least their own interpretation and adaptation of it, perhaps it can live on in other ways in terms of engaging in other forms of political activity, whether it is to challenge uh, the regime, whether it is to participate in other forms of dissenting activities, um, remains to be seen. And that is entirely possible. I I was following some of the activities of my former informants uh, on social media, and you can see some of them engaging in civil disobedience uh, at the moment. And of course, I, I don't know if that's actually uh, due to their 
participation in human rights activities already that has shaped or emboldened them, empowered them to do so. But you can see that, see these folks channeling their energy into the more immediate challenge in their country. So also to tie this back to what I talked about earlier, the LGBT rights movement's founding is very much tied to the 88 generation, the way in which they managed to uh, reach out to the first batch of activists that eventually helped to build up the movement. Uh, one of the important networks was the 88 generation through their underground connections. And so you can see how that legacy lived on in the LGBT rights movement, in other movements around political freedoms as well in Myanmar. And there is perhaps hope and some reason to think that movements like this one, uh, the LGBT rights movement, I study or other movements that have emerge since 2011 have that longer legacy, not perhaps in achieving concrete legal reform in this present moment, but passing on, living on through networks, through uh, their aspirations down the road. uh, The other thing I also wanted to point out is that the LGBT rights movement has not been, and thankfully, a major target of political repression. And that's also a blessing and a curse in the sense that uh, they don't get as much priority in some of the reforms that were happening before the, the situation. But that also means that they are more neglected and not seen as so threatening. So I guess perhaps it's also time to look at whether all forms of advocacy are repressed equally, or maybe there are differences depending on the kind of work that people do on the ground. Well, thanks for all your insights, Lynette. Just before we finish, could we please hear a bit more about what you're working on now? I'm currently writing a short uh, monograph on politics of rights in Southeast Asia. This is not an original empirical project. It's uh, part of the Cambridge University Press Element series in the Policy and Society in Southeast Asia series. It looks at the state of uh, rights in Southeast Asia and the literature uh, related to that. And uh, I offer my perspective on how to make sense of uh, rights in Southeast Asia and also the often messy and contradictory literature around it. So that's a project that I'm working on at the moment. The other larger project that I'm working on uh, doesn't have much to do on the surface with rights mobilization and social movements. It really looks at aging and laws around what we call filial piety laws in Asia, particularly Taiwan, Southeast China, Vietnam, and Singapore. Uh, So that's another project that is empirically based and uh, sort of slowing down for the moment due to pandemic-induced restrictions on travel. So those are the two that I'm working on. And the third one I'm working on with a collaborator is on uh, the genealogy of government controls on infectious diseases. We call that project governing uh, through contagion and traces, starting with the former British uh, colonies, uh, how current uh, measures are so invasive, uh, but yet seen as so important to protecting people from the coronavirus infection, how that has a legacy uh, in, and how they are being reworked, but also at the same time reimposed through different epidemics, tracing back to SARS uh, and then to the colonial period when there are different other kinds of epidemics coming through the the colonies. Wow, it sounds like you're very busy. Well, thanks again, Lynette, for taking the time to join us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies today to discuss your new book, The Politics of Love in Myanmar. I'm Michelle Ford, and you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, 
a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you'd enjoyed this episode, you can find conversations about hundreds of other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. Talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you.